When you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and you see what's been going on there, what you see is you see a church that has been experiencing a lot of disunity, a lot of disunity. And it's not unlike our church, and it's not unlike our culture right now. There's so much here that speaks to us right now because we're, we're living in a, in a divided culture. We're living uh, even in a divided church where many of us have different political persuasions. And we talk about politics openly here, not as uh, one or the other, but as, you know, something other. We want to we wanna talk about Jesus. We don't just want to talk about what our political persuasion is. And what the Apostle Paul is saying to these people is he's saying, like, you, you're missing the point. You're missing the point of what you claim to believe. Like you claim that you have relationship with God and you claim that you have a lot of knowledge, but what you don't understand really is you don't understand really where, uh, where your, uh, your life comes from. You don't understand what, what's going on. You don't understand what you've been saved for. You kind of know what you've been saved from, but you don't understand what you've been saved for. And as a result, what happens is that their lives do not match up with the gospel. They've been believing this gospel of, of uh, entitlement. They've been saying, you know what? I have rights. I have rights that, that should be exercised. They have this gospel of entitlement that tells them that they should have these rights, and if they don't get them, they're going to scream about them. They're going to they're yell that they're being victimized and, you know, it's really similar to our culture where there's so many of us that are so connected with this idea that Christians are being persecuted in America today because you can't get the coffee cup from Starbucks that you want. But I just want you to know that, like, man, like not getting the coffee cup from Starbucks or, not, uh, or, or having a local business or a national business support something that you don't like and, and saying somehow like this is per persecution is just craziness. And what I'm trying to tell you right now is that Paul is speaking to an issue, but it's not that issue. The problem is this, is that these people who are the so-called strong, they've got good theology but they have a, an, a seriously bad attitude. They have good theology. They know what's right. They know what's true. But they have a really, really, really bad attitude toward their, their culture. And I just need to tell you today, and I tell you this often, and I'm pretty sure you're going to get sick of it, and I'm pretty sure I don't care. So I, we're just teaching through 1 Corinthians, and this is what it says. And the only way that I can apply this, and the only way I can look at this is that because we believe in God's absolute sovereignty, that he knew and he planned this day that we'd be going through a book of the Bible that's talking about a divided church, that this would speak to a church that is divided today. Because you've got a church in Corinth that's divided over really silly things like, should I eat meat that's sacrificed to an idol? I don't know. I don't know. Should I do that? But today, we have other disunity problems. 
And the disunity at the core of it has to do with our political persuasions a lot of times. But that's not the only thing. It's not politics. You go into your home, and really, uh, if you missed the marriage conference, it's your loss. I'll just tell you that. But uh, uh, your marriage is probably going to fall apart, but that's all right. Um, yeah. We'll be here to pick up the pieces, all right? Um, no, um, I probably shouldn't joke about things like that as a pastor, but uh, we'll figure that out later. But you know, the, the disunity extends into your family, and it comes like this. It comes in a way that says, I have rights. I have rights. You have obligations to me. You're obligated to do these things. What Matt Chandler was talking about at, at the marriage conference was this idea of a contractual relationship versus a covenant relationship. And so when we view our marriage as though it's contractual, uh, contractual, um, what happens is this, is that you say, you know what, as long as you're giving me what I got into this for, Wife, as long as you have sex with me whenever I want. Um, um, you know, husband, as long as you're bringing home the bacon the way that I had always pictured. Um, you know, as long as you're doing for me, as long as you speak to me the way that I want to be spoken to, then I will, I will love you and I'll f fulfill this. But you know what this brings? It is a gospel of entitlement that comes into your life. And so the good news has been distorted in your life to say this. The good news is that you owe me something. The good news is that you, you owe me. You, you bring this into your work relationships where you say, you know what, as, uh, uh, I do this for you and you provide all of these things for me. There's never any level of like giving more to your, your boss perhaps. Uh, maybe you're different. Maybe, you're, maybe you have something else going on in your life. But there's this idea of it's contractual. Like you're saying, like I, uh, you do this for me, I, I, I do this for you. And what happens is this, is that whether it's in between uh, your workmates or in between you and your boss or in, in between you and, and, and the people that um, buy from you, what happens is this, is that you turn everything into this obligation that they have to do for you, and it's this gospel of entitlement. See, this, the, the symptom uh, of the problem is this, is that like our country is divided and we've seen it, but it's really been like that for a long time. And really, just everyone's thoughts and feelings are coming to the service in a, in a very public way because of social media and the, uh, you know, the, the news media and how prolific it is and how we get it on our phones. We're reading every detail all the time. And so what's, what's taking place is that that's just really a, a symptom of a bigger problem that comes inwardly into all of us. And it's a problem that's common to all of humanity. It's a problem that's common to every single one of us, and that is that in my heart of hearts, what I really want is uh, for everyone to serve me. In my heart of hearts, what I really want is I want people to bow down before me, and I want them to worship me. I want them to give me what I want when I want it, and it's a gospel of entitlement, and that's what this church is dealing with in Corinth, but that's also what this church deals with. You know why? Because humanity has a common problem. Humanity has a seriously common problem. That's the problem of depravity. The problem is this, is that you and I are, are not just sort of sinful at some point. We are sinful in such a way that we're separated from God, so much so that, we, that God has to die for us. I'm so sinful that God had to die for me. 
Have you ever thought about that, you know, at all? Like, I'm so sinful, I was so bad that God had to die for me. You say, well, I wasn't really that bad. I mean, I was like, how bad could I have been by five years old? How, how really could I have been, how bad could I have been? You know, I tried to do good things for, for people, but here's the thing is that in your heart of hearts, what was really going on, what you were born with is a gospel of entitlement that says my rights are my rights and you should worship and serve me. And so what this speaks to is that Paul is really speaking practically here to this group of people and he's essentially telling them how to get through this. And so um, I'm going to try to uh, cover some ground today. Um, I intended to get through all of chapter 8 last week and got through verse 3. So um, we'll just see how far we go, all right? So I'm not going to make any promises today. I'm, what, my hope is to get through 9. So you're like, whoa, that's a lot. But uh, we'll see if, that even, if we even come close to that. Okay, here we go. So what it just said here in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 is this. It says, now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he's known by God. And so we, we just really camped on that. And we just said, like, if you think that you know something, if you're pretty sure that you know what's up, the, the truth is that you don't know yet as you ought to know. You don't really know what you're talking about. There's really a, you, you think there's a level of knowledge, but there really is a level of ignorance. But even more than that, because you think that you know, you're not only ignorant, but you're also arrogant. So there's this ignorance and this arrogance that goes along with Christian people who think they know what's up. Do you understand what this Bible verse just told you? I didn't call you ignorant or arrogant, but I just want to tell you that this Bible verse just said that when we think that we know what's up, we're ignorant and we're arrogant. And so he says this. What you really need to understand is that like, if you have love for God, and I could go on another sermon on this whole uh, sentence, which is where I got held up last week, but like, if you really think that you have love for God, like you got a relationship with God, and like you're loving Him, do you know what's true about you is not that you're so good and that you love God, it's just it's that God knows you. And the only thing you can take from that is, is this, is like, it's not that I was so good that God was glad to take me. It's that God was so good that he took me just as I am. He knows me. He knows me. So Paul says, like, let's erase all this stuff out of our mind that we have this better theology than everyone else, and let's just think about the fact that like, if you have love for God, what's really true about you is that you can't take credit for that and that I know you, God says to us. So this is what Paul says. Paul says, therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God. Well, stop right there for a second. What he just said is this, is like there are these people who are uh, really worried that they, like if they were to eat meat that was sacrificed to an idol, big problem during those days, like they feel like they're going to lose their salvation. They feel like, like everything's gone, everything's lost. And so Paul is saying to these people who are the strong, who say that's not true, and he affirms them and he says, it's at, you're right, you have this right, that there really is, that an idol has no real existence. 
There is no God but one. There is no other God. Get, get me on this. There is no other God. There is none other. What it's going to say later in chapter 10 is this, is that all the other gods are really just demons masquerading as gods. So Satan's henchmen masquerading as gods trying to steal worship from God. And so what Paul is telling them is saying, you're right. You have the right theology about this, strong people. You have the right theology about this. And then he says this, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Now what he just said there very quickly was this, is that Jesus is God. Okay, so we don't worship multiple gods, we're worshiping one God. It's the Father and and, uh, it is from him, uh, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. So stop right there for a second. That's why we sing. It's your breath in our lungs. So we pour out our praise. We pour out our praise. What we're saying is this. Is we're saying not only do we get our existence from you, but it is for you that we exist. It is for you that we are uh, existing. And that is the posture of our lives. That's what we're doing with our lives. We are existing for him. And we worship one God. Not all roads lead to God, only one road leads to God, and that is through Jesus. And he says, uh, one Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, when he uses the word Lord, what he means there is this. It's another name, another word for God. And so what he just said is, Jesus is God, and he says, one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So what's true about us is that it's from God the Father, and it is for God the Father, and it's through uh, uh, the Son that we exist, and it's through that we're able to even operate in our lives. So not only does God create us, he gives us our existence, but he gives us the power with Jesus to even operate as a Christian. So just a brief side note, and that is this, is that when you become a Christian, What's true is this, is that you are not somebody who is to operate on your own abilities. And when you're operating on your own abilities and when you're somebody who says, I've got to make this happen, I've got to become more moral, I've got to become that person that I want to be, and try to white knuckle it, what's happening is this, is that you are trying to say, it is all of my own accord, and I want to tell you that if you're successful... And becoming a better person on your own ability, all you're going to do is become someone who is ignorant and arrogant. That's all. And that's where the gospel goes wrong. And so Paul says this, your existence doesn't come from you. Your very life, your ability to follow me does not come from you. It comes from God. Most people in America don't understand this. And I, and, I, and I would venture to say that most Christians in America, I don't believe, understand this. People who identify as Christians, most of them don't understand something. And so I just, I just n- another side note here. When Christians take up a political cause, and we as true Bible-believing followers of Jesus Christ, when we say, well, that's the Christian way to go right now, that oftentimes is not the Christian way to go. 
That all that is, is, is just a group of Christians oftentimes that have just misread things. Now, there are some things that I would die for. Like, I, I would die to end abortion. I would die uh, to save babies from certain death through Planned Parenthood. I'd die for that at any moment, any second, right? But I just got to tell you that just because it's some type of Christian platform does not make it something worth following. We must look at the scriptures and determine that. Verse 7, however, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols eat food as really offered to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled. These people... Uh, they, somehow they eat this food offered to an idol, and all of a sudden, now their conscience is defiled. These weak brothers, they don't really have the good theology that the strong brothers do. But their conscience is defiled, and what you can take from that is this, is that when you believe something to be wrong, when, when in your life you kind of go, man, I feel like that's wrong, but everyone's telling me it's okay, but I feel like it's wrong. When you go against your conscience in those things, what happens is this, is that you're, you're defiling yourself. It doesn't necessarily matter that it is right or wrong when you think it's wrong and you engage in it. That's a problem. That's a problem. That's what Paul is getting at. He's basically saying there's a real issue when people who believe that something's wrong engage in that sin because it is sin for them. Okay? So then he says this. Food will not commend us to God. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. Okay. Listen to what he says. Self-effort, your behavior modification... If you say, I, I, I never touch alcohol, or if you say, I do touch alcohol, or if you're somebody who says, you know, I, 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 I like to eat, eat this type of food or that type of food, or I, I, I diet a lot, or I don't diet a lot, or I, I eat unhealthy food at McDonald's, or I eat uh, healthy food at uh, whatever one of those crazy grocery stores is where you have to carry out your own groceries all the time. What in the world is wrong with these places? But like a, any one of those things, like the food does not commend you to God. It's, it's not going to make you any closer to God. It's, it's not going to pull you away from God. But Paul says this to these strong people who have good theology. He says, but take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. And this is where it gets to the heart of the matter. These Christians are people who just have not cared about their brothers and sisters. They haven't cared about the people that are around them. All they care about is their rights. They say, they say you know, I have a right to do it. It's not wrong. See, Paul told me it's not wrong. I have a right to do it. I have a right to take up this cause. I have a right to do these things. I, I have a right to free speech, and so I should exercise that right. And it doesn't matter if anybody's hurt by it. And Paul says this. No, you've got to consider... The person who's weaker. You've got to consider the person who's weaker. And in, in, in many ways, our democracy was built on that. To consider the weaker brother. That's why we, that, that's why we have a democracy. That's why we, we are, are working toward not setting aside people who are minorities. We work toward allowing them to have a voice in some way in 
our culture. And so what these people are doing is they're saying, you know what? I should be able to do it because it's my right. He says, for if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. And I told you last week, I hate that verse, all right? I've got a, I've got a brisket on the Traeger right now. And uh, so uh, I'm hoping nobody has a problem with meat. But what Paul is saying here is he's saying, when you sin against your brother, you're sinning against Christ. So in the context of the church, when you've refused to Look out for the weaker brother around you. You are not just sinning against them. It's, it's not your right to do whatever you want. It is your right as a Christian to curtail the way that you act and to look out for the weaker brother. And when we don't do that, we sin not just against that brother, but we're sinning against Christ. Now, Paul's going to open this up and he's going to get into something a little bit broader. And this is really where I want to get to this morning. Paul says, am I not free? Chapter 9, verse 1. Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. So he's basically saying this. He's saying, I have rights. I have freedoms. I'm an apostle. What makes him an apostle? It's essentially this. Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Apostleship comes from seeing Jesus being called by Jesus, okay? That's what apostleship is. We don't have apostleship today, okay? We have people who have the gifting of apostle that start new works and things like that, but that's, that's our use of that word. That's not a spiritual component there other than spiritual giftings with uh, beginning things. But I would just say this. That, need, that needs to be clear. Paul says, am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? If to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you. He's saying, listen, I have the right to be treated as an apostle with you. I have rights too. And he says, this is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? The answer is yes. And what's he saying there? Well, he could be saying, like, I'm doing ministry so much that uh, what's happening is this, is that I don't really have any support, and so as a result, what happens is that I don't have a lot of food, and I don't have a lot of water, and so what's happening is my uh, apostleship, meaning I'm coming to minister to you people, means this, that I don't have food, and I don't have water sometimes. But it could also mean this. It could mean, listen, my food and my drink doesn't come from you. You're not paying my way. That's probably what it means. He says, but I have rights. I could ask you for that because I'm ministering to you. He says, do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as, as the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? And what's he saying there? He's saying, I could bring my wife with me if I had a wife, and that would be on you to, to help make that happen. I think it could also mean this. Like, I've given up having a wife. I've given up having sex. I've given up that relationship so that I can come minister to you. I have a right to do that, and yet I haven't taken that right. And he says, uh, or is it only 
Barnabas and I, who have no right to refrain from working for a living. Who serves as a, a soldier at his own expense? No one. Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? No one. Who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? No one. Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not speak entirely for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more. Okay, stop right there for a second. What Paul just said over and over again, and I realized that was long, but I, what I wanted you to see was this. Paul's saying, I have every stinking right in the world to ask you to support me financially. I have every right to do that. But I have given up my rights. See, Paul does not believe in a gospel of entitlement. I'm doing these things for you, and so you, you've got to do those things for me. No, Paul is saying this. He's saying, I have set aside, I have given up, I have let everything go, I have uh, allowed myself to get involved in this, knowing that I'm not going to get paid back in material things, knowing that you're not going to support me, but why does he do this? Why does he do this? Let me ask you something. When it comes to giving up pay, when it comes to giving up the things that you hold most dear in your home, that you want from your spouse, when it comes to wanting things from your friends, your, your friendships, your relationships, when it comes to those things, the way that you work with people, is there an area where you can say, you know what, that, that's... I've given up these things. And too often, this is what we say, look at all the things that I've done for you. Wife, I remember saying this to my wife. Like, I, do you see how much work I'm doing right now? Do you see all this stuff? That's a gospel of entitlement. That's, 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 these are my rights. I shouldn't have to do one more thing. That's a gospel of entitlement. But Paul says, like, on every stinking level, like, I have given up, and I have given up, and I have given up. But why does he do that? Why would you do that? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you see what he just said there? You see what he's saying? He's saying, I have all of these rights, and yet I'm not taking these rights because I would rather endure anything. You know what that's saying? I'd rather endure anything, any type of sacrificial service. I'd rather endure anything in my job. <coughs> I'd rather give up whatever it takes. I'd rather do whatever it takes so that 
I could not put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. So we've got the gospel of entitlement, but then we've got the gospel of Christ. Got the gospel of my rights. And then we've got the gospel of sacrifice. And I just want to tell you that this is where we fail. This is where we fail to realize one thing. One thing. God came to save sinners. And I am one of them. God came in Jesus. He came in Jesus Christ. And I am the foremost sinner. That God has every right in the world to do whatever he wants. Because as we heard, I owe my very existence, the breath in my lungs, to God. I owe everything that I have to God. And so what's true about me is this, is that when I demand my rights as a Christian, and I'm talking politics right now, when I demand my rights as a Christian, do you know what I'm doing? I am engaging with the gospel of entitlement. I've, I've made myself into a victim, which victim culture is a big thing right now. And right-wing people like to say, look at all the victims out there who, who are screaming about what they don't have, but, but you guys are persecuting me. Hey, guess what? You just made yourself a victim. It's victim mentality, and we all have it. Guess what? You're no different than the person you disagree with. What Paul is saying is that when you and I get the gospel, what's going to happen is this, is that like, I don't want anything that I'm doing to get in the way of sharing Jesus with somebody else. I don't want anything in my life to get in the way. I want to be able to share Jesus with people, and that's my goal, that's my vision, that's my dream. And so what it means is this, is that I set aside my rights because my marriage is going to be an expression of the gospel. Ephesians chapter 5. The Apostle Paul goes back and forth between talking about marriage and talking about the church. And he says, it's like, he doesn't even know, it's like, like marriage like, is a picture of the church and the church is a picture of marriage. And so the gospel is deeply intertwined with that. And do you know what that is? That's truth. It's truth. So when your marriage is a gospel expression, like I give up my rights for my, my wife. I give up stuff so that she can have what she wants. I give up my desire to have whatever it is so that she can have whatever it is that she needs. That is a true representation of what God intended marriage to be. And when people look at us and they say, it's not just that it's an unusual marriage. What happens is this, because they're also created by God, what they get to say is this. They get to say, that's true. That's a true representation of what marriage should be. They don't know that. They say, that's weird. That's crazy, man. You guys like get along and you, uh, you know, you, you have good fights. You have good resolution. 
you enjoy each other? It's because it's true. And the truth is found in the fact that he is the one who created us. And when my existence is filled with Jesus, when, when my existence uh, works its way into my relationships and into my job and into my marriage, what happens is this, is that I am no longer a stumbling block for everybody else. And now all I get to be is an arrow that's pointing, ah, you see that guy? Do you see him? Do you see God? Do you see God? Uh-huh, yes. My existence is through him. It's because of Jesus that my life is operating in this way. So people look at us and they say, that's a true representation of who God is. That's accurate. And so Paul goes on and he says, do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve in the altar share in the sacrificial offerings in the same way the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. He's restating it. Listen, like I have a right to take this stuff from you, but I've made no use of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision, for I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting." If I'm just preaching the gospel, that's just, you know, that's just, that's, that gives me no ground for, for boasting. For necessity is laid on me. Like, as a believer, like somebody who un- knows and understands what God has done for me, like, I have to talk about the gospel. Like, it's just necessity. Like, it's going to take place. And guess what? That's you too. Like, if you know and love Jesus Christ, if you know and love the gospel of Jesus Christ, what's going to happen in your relationships is not that you're standing on the street corner like some moron screaming at people saying uh, fags are going to hell or whatever else, but you're preaching with your life, with your marriage, with your relationships, with the stuff that you have. You're preaching all the time. And Paul says, necessity is laid on me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I, will have, a re- I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I, I am still entrusted with the stewardship. Whether I want to or whether I don't, I still have to. The commentators are even kind of confused at what that means. I don't know what he's saying. He's just saying, like, either way, doesn't matter whether I want to or not, I have to do it. And so he says... What then is my reward? What do I get out of it? What do I get out of this life of sacrifice? That in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. So Paul's whole life Everything that he gives up, everything that he sacrifices, everything that he's laying aside is so that he can present the gospel free of charge. I want there to be no cost to you, is what he's saying. It's not going to cost you anything for me to share the gospel with you. So let's talk about that for a second. What's it costing the people around you to hear the gospel? If Paul is, it really, Jesus is the epitome of this. But Paul is 
pretty good example too, right? Saying, laying aside all these rights in order to share the gospel. But let's just look at our own lives for a second. Let's just ask, what's it costing for you to share the gospel? Someone's going to pay. Either you pay or they're going to pay. Either you pay through setting aside your personal convictions on your political uh, leanings, the various things that you want to say. I'm talking about right or left right now. You pay. What are you paying? You don't get to exercise what's owed to you through the United States government, which is the right to free speech. You're paying that. But it's my right as American. But you're not an American first. You're a Jesus follower first. Who's going to pay in your relationships? Are you going to pay or are you going to try to make them pay? Here's what I mean by that. You could spout off whatever you want because you do live in America. You could say whatever you want. But in order for that person that hears you to receive the gospel, in order for them to hear it, now they have to pay something, and that is to get over what they view as your abhorrent views. In the context of your family, who's going to pay in your, in your marriage? In order for you to preach the gospel, either you're going to pay and set aside your rights in your marriage in order to create a gospel-centered marriage that says we are characterized by sacrifice. So you pay, or you're going to make your spouse pay, and in that sense, everyone else pays. Because now your marriage is not a replication of the church. It is not a replication of the gospel. It is not a display of God's goodness and grace and mercy. It's a display of the gospel of entitlement. Who's going to pay? Are you going to pay? Or are you going to make everyone else pay? Because do you know what's at stake? People hearing the gospel clearly. There are too many of us in this room that don't care whether we're preaching the gospel. There are too many of us in here that do not care. And it is not about you preaching with words. It is about you preaching with your life. And I just need to tell you that I love you and I care about you and, I, and I, I want nothing more for you than for you to be somebody who's preaching the gospel in every area of your life so that many, many people can come to faith in Jesus. And what's going to happen in our city when there's people all over our city who are saying, you know what? I'm now going to sacrifice because Jesus sacrificed for me. Now, I'm going to pay because Jesus paid the ultimate for me. When we say that and then we pass that on to other people and they say that and say, I'm going to pay because Jesus paid for me. I'm, I'm going to pay. That changes culture. Do you, do you know what payment looks like? Payment looks like serving our city. 
It looks like inconveniencing ourselves financially for our city. It looks like inconveniencing ourselves and sacrificing ourselves for what's, what's it's sacrificing our time for the people in our city that are the most vulnerable. It's saying, I'm not just going to sit around and say that I care about people or say that I'm an, ad, an advocate for life, both in the immigrant and the unborn child. I'm not just going to say that, but I'm going to be somebody who's going to preach I'm going to preach with my life. I'm going to preach with the way that I respond because Jesus gave all for me, and so I'm going to give all for him. I'm not going to make everyone else pay to come hear the gospel. I'm going to pay. So that's my question. Who's going to pay in your relationships? Jesus paid for you. Who are you paying for? Who are you paying for? Jesus went to the cross so that we could have his gospel. I'm praying that we'd grab hold of it and not take hold of the gospel of entitlement. I'm praying that we'd take hold of it and that we would let go of our individual rights as Americans. I'm not saying there aren't valuable things there. I'm not saying there aren't th- reasons to to fight for the Constitution. I'm not, I, they're good and godly things. They, like, sinners wrote the Constitution and they still wrote things that are godly. Okay? There's good things in there. But I, I'm saying this, when we give up our rights and we sacrifice, it's going to be amazing. It's going to be amazing. I want to, I want to bring somebody up here right now. Um, uh, she doesn't know I'm going to do this, but uh, Justin and Amy Wallace, uh, would you guys come up here? She just walked in the back. So uh, I'm doing this right now because I think she's a great example. So, yeah, I called you. Yeah, come up here. So, uh, like in, can we give her a hand? You don't even know why you're clapping. Just clap for her. Justin, come up here. Justin, come up here. You guys are one. Come on, just come on up here. So, like, uh, in September of, I'm going to cry. <laughs> Gosh, dang it. I prayed this morning that I would not cry, okay? But, uh, you know, you, like, it was more than 10 years ago. It was it's September of 2005. And um, I walked into a Sunday school class over at the Nazarene Church to take the job as the college pastor. And you were there. Yes. Yeah. That was uh, 12 years ago now. Yeah. I cannot believe you've listened to my preaching this long. Like, <laughs> you have some serious patience. Patience. I mean, like, it was bad. It was bad. It was worse than today. I'm telling you. I like, uh, but it, it was bad. But like, over the years, you've. You have sacrificed and served like so many times. You met a great guy here. And um, I heard that today is your last day serving here at Outward Church, right? Yeah. yeah. And so, um, like, you, you've been here for 12 years. You've, like, been involved in community groups. You've, you've um, what, like, what are all the different areas that you've served at, at Outward? 
Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> um, a little bit of everything. A little bit of I don't everything. Know. Like, I did hospitality at the Grand. Yeah. Um, One of the first people in the theater to do that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I led a small group of girls. Yeah. For a number of years. Yeah. Gosh, what else? You were just doing the pole gems ministry, yes. not necessarily yes. here, but you—that's how yeah. you've been serving. That's you've been, been the last five years. And yeah. Yeah. Doing a, a lot of hospitality, serving faithfully, yeah. and uh, I just want to thank you publicly for uh, being with me this long. Don't do that. I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, loyalty is a cool thing. And I appreciate that. And we don't get to talk a lot, you know, over the last few years. But I just, I think about you. And I'm, and I'm thankful for you. So, can I give you a hug? Yes. I'm not a huggy person, but I'll give you a hug, too. Thank you. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm thankful for you guys, for your service. And I just want to pray for you as we close the service here. Yeah, it really did, didn't it? Yeah. But you're not leaving quite yet. You've got a couple more weeks before you leave. But today was your last day yeah. serving. And so I just yeah. want to recognize you today. So let me pray for you guys. Lord Jesus, I, I just thank you so much for, for Amy and, and, and Justin. And Lord, just their service to you. And Lord, we're asking that you would um, do like amazing things in their life. That Lord, uh, that they'd be able to find a great church and find great ministry. And Lord, that they'd be able to engage and Lord, carry your gospel. Lord, we thank you so much. Uh, for the sacrifice that they have uh, put in here at our church. We thank you um, for what you're going to do in and through them in, in the years to come. It's in your name we pray. Amen.